Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, if you would. Luke 18. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Excellent. Excellent. A couple things I want to say just uh, that are not part of the message, so they're free of charge. When I was in college so many years ago, we had, uh, we had societies, not fellowships. It was really the same idea, though. We called them societies. I was part of the best society that was on campus, mind you. I, I heard a very slight amen in that, on that one right there. Uh, and our, our societies had chaplains. They had chaplains. These were the godliest men on campus. Do I hear an amen? Okay. You just heard an amen from my society chaplain. Dr. Burkett. Yeah. He should have preached a little longer, a little louder or something. I, it, didn't have the, it didn't have the effect it should have had. I, I actually remember certain of his messages. It was really good. Very memorable. Well. <laughs> oh, stop. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was the society of the, that the dean of men had been in, Tony Miller. It was Pie Up Wolfback. Pie up Wolfback. You remember those, huh? Well, we've been reformed, transformed, whatever. Okay. Anyway, uh, just noting the connection there, that goes back, uh, what, 10, 12 years or something. All right, on a little more serious note, uh, and again, this is not part of the message that, that God has led me to bring here from. Uh, Luke chapter 18, but maybe just um, something that God is burdening me about uh, as, a, as just a lover of history. Uh, this last summer, I spent some time in some graveyards. Isn't that exciting? How many of you enjoy that? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Come on, come to class. Come on. We'll talk about them. And uh, my most recent one was just about, uh, I don't know, a week and a half ago down in St. Louis, where I stood over the grave of some Baptist men that uh, right down in inner city St. Louis in a very large cemetery. And one of those being my first cousin, about seven times removed, founder of what is today Mercer University in Georgia. But he's buried in uh, St. Louis, and he was a Baptist preacher. And uh, I stood over his grave, and I just was, um, again, in a cemetery. You know, you're, you're talking about the representation of, of many lives, many things said, many things learned, many things learned. Wouldn't you say? I mean, just look out over the hills, and you see all of those, those tombstones, sometimes pretty exotic, pretty large, and you think, buried there is somebody who learned a lot. And I wondered how many of those things learned were actually taken to the grave with them and never imparted to anybody else. That thought just came to me as I was standing there. I mean, think of all the effort, not to mention money spent, but the effort that you're making right now to, to learn what you're learning. So excited to finally grasp it, get it, and have it, and then what? Die with it? Then where does it go? 
right? Silence. If you don't give it to somebody else before that time, that's what will happen with all of this that you're learning. Everything. Every chapel message, church message, what you get out of your devotions, and certainly what you get out of class. It isn't for you. If it's for you, it will be silent one day. If the Lord tarries, it will be silent. It's not for you. It's for somebody else. I love what the Hebrews says, Hebrews 11 of Abel. He being dead, yet speaketh. Wow, something he learned is still being taught. It didn't die with him. All right, anyway, that's not what I'm speaking on today. So that was free. Luke chapter 18, you're there with me. And uh, we're just going to look at a few verses, maybe another couple of passages, but we'll spend most of our time right here. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd impart some truth to us, truth that, first of all, will take hold, will change us, will really just flow into us and through us bearing fruit, but then also truth that we can impart to others and impart to others, certainly verbally communicated, but also just by our example, allowing your word now to cleanse us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, many decisions have already been made, and uh, I've been thinking on this, this passage and this message now for a few weeks, and uh, listening, honestly, listening to the testimonies yesterday, I thought, I don't know, this message seems a little, uh, a little passe, a little like uh, too late, but the Lord said, no, it's, it's still time. Many, many decisions have been made, good decisions. I've heard many... Uh, Many testimonials and heard them again yesterday. Just of what now, what God is, how he's using you beyond getting things right. And yet there might be one. This might be one for one that is still, despite Camp Joy and uh, days spent there, hours, despite the opening meetings, there might still be a struggle somewhere. There might be something left undone. 
And if that's the case, then I would say this is for you because yesterday I was ready to change my message and preach something else. And God said, no, no, this is the right time and this is the right message. The title of my message today is The Day That God Gets Right. The Day That God Gets Right. Now that almost sounds blasphemous. But do you know that's in the Bible? The day that God gets right. How could it be that God would need to get right? How could he be wrong? Hmm. Go with me. We'll be back, so don't uh, lose your place here for time's sake here. And go to 1 John chapter 1, if you would. 1 John chapter 1. And let me just show you an example of, uh, of a supporting scripture here on this idea that there, it might be possible that God would need to get right. Look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a, what's the word? And his word is not in us. Can you imagine God, a liar? Wouldn't a liar need to get right? Wow. I know this is hard to think about. And what does that verse mean? <laughs> what does the verse before it mean? Don't forget about that one. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Literally there, you know, we're, look, we're all sinners. That's not what it means. But if God is pointing at you and he's saying, you know, you need to get that thing right. And you say, I, that's not wrong. I'm not wrong. I'm right. You know what you just did? According to 1 John 1.10. Hear me again. If God is convicting, if the Holy Spirit is trying to convince you me, of sin. And we're excusing, we're justifying, or we're just simply ignoring. He then sends others to us, parents, roommates, leadership, faculty administration, a friend, a sibling, anybody, and says, you know, hey, you ought to think about this. And we say, ah, oh, it's nothing, really. You don't understand. We ignore. We justify. We minimize. We don't deal with it. You know, according to 1 John 1.10, we made God a liar. I'm right. You're not. We would never say that. We would never say, well, God, you're wrong. No, no. Especially when somebody else is involved. It's much easier to say that they're wrong. It's so easy. It's just it's so natural. Well, you just don't understand. You got it wrong. I'm right. Well, if God sent them, if they've got a, a thought from God for, you, for us, we just made God a liar. That's a problem. Is that not a problem? That's a problem. Boy, what would it take for God to get right? Go with me to Romans chapter 3. 
it's a, it's a verse in a, in a bigger discussion, and I, I don't want to get sidetracked into that discussion, but a clear principle is laid down here that I think is helpful to our thought here. Romans chapter 3, in a discussion about, uh, about Jews that's left over from chapter 2 and the covenants that God has made to the, to the Jews, but in verse 4, it says this, God forbid, yea, let God be, what's the word? True, but every man a Hmm. What does it take for God to get right? Notice as it, as it is written, notice what it says here, referring back now to the Old Testament, that thou mightest be justified. You know what that means? That God, you would get right. That thou mightest be justified. In thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Can you imagine God being judged? And how, does, how, is, how is it uh, that God is judged correct? I think you're probably beginning to understand. Let God be true. And every man a liar. You know, when, when a faculty member says this, or your dean says that, or your roommate says this, your parents call you and say, wow, here's something here. Maybe they already have. Maybe there's something unresolved. And you, you are so bold to say, oh, you don't, you just don't understand me. You don't get it. I'm a unique bird. Whatever. I, I just, I'm my own person. I, and you you justify, so easy to do that. And if that thought that they have is from God for you, you're in a bad way. You want to be very careful about that. Let's go back now to Luke chapter 18. Notice now what the Holy Spirit is going to give us in that verse 9. If you've got a Red letter edition, you notice verse 9 is the only black part of this here. It's a narrative. This is what the Holy Spirit has given us through Luke, letting us know what Christ is up to, what he's doing, and why. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now, this, this is a parable now. These two guys in verses 10 through 14 we don't know their names. It's a parable. Okay, but is a parable a fairy tale? Do you suppose something like this could have happened? Do you suppose Jesus could put names to those? Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Do you know that the parables were so real to both the Pharisees on the one hand and the sinners on the other that many times they got it? I think he's talking about me. I've done that. I've, I've said that. I've made that mistake. And do you know that uh, even according to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, it says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter in the kingdom of heaven. That righteousness being discussed in verse 9 has to be exceeded. Matthew 21, 45, it says, And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. He perceived that he spake of them. It's not a fairy tale. 
This kind of thing really did happen. Where two men would go up into the temple to pray. Just like this. I wonder if it's still happening. I wonder if there are students here. I wonder if we can see ourselves in this parable of these two men. I want you to notice still in verse 9 here the word trusted. I love this word. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were right. Righteous. The word literally means, means innocent. Which brings them to despise others around them. Roommates, friends, family members, parents, maybe even the person who's coming to me and talking to me. You just you don't get it. We have a tendency to despise others as a result of thinking that, well, I got it figured out. And that's what Jesus, that's the whole purpose of this parable, is to present somebody, as in, even as he's talking to them, but I'm just going to tell you a story about about yourselves, about what it really looks like. When you trust your own thinking, your own righteousness, yourself, selfishness, pride. The word trusted here in the Greek is the word pytho. I, I just, I love that word. Let me just park on it for just a minute. The word pytho, found 55 times in the New Testament. It is uh, translated in a variety of ways, which helps us incredibly. Now, the word trusted is a great translation. That's a, that's a good word. But in Philippians 1.6, it's this, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Confident. Jesus is talking to men who are confident in themselves. I got it. If somebody's trying to tell you something, no, I got it. You don't have it. I do. Your confidence is in yourself. Your thought is not, you know, there might be something I'm missing here. Maybe I ought to listen to this. Maybe I ought to consider this. I'm I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I'm just going to tell you that my first reaction too many times is, you don't understand. I got it. I know. I know what I'm talking about. First reaction, just the first, bam. No, you don't understand. I, I know the answer. Trusting in oneself, having confidence. 2 Timothy 1.12, for, for the which cause I also suffer these things, and nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able. Yes. Pytho, persuaded. Who are you persuaded by? Yourself? That's what this is about. Hey, if I need to be persuaded, I'll just talk to myself. Acts chapter 5, verse 38. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men, Gamaliel said, and let them alone. For, this, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will be of not. But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it. Lest happily you be found even to fight against God. Verse 40, and to him they agreed. Oh, yeah, that's good. Agreed. Pytho. Who do you agree with? Self? 
One more, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them to have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your soul, speaking of church authority, really the pastor. Obey. Pytho, whom do you obey? The one you trust, the one you're persuaded by, the one you believe in. Is that self? That's what the parable's about. If we're trusting in self, there's unquestionably, there's going to be times when God needs to get right because he's wrong. Ouch. What would that look like? Well, all right, let's go back to the scriptures here. Verse 10. Luke 18, verse 10. Two men, here they are, went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a Republican. A Republican. <laughs> no. Okay, anyway, you probably should, but. All right, let's look at what they have in common. Let's look at what they have in common. They're in the same place, headed in the same direction, exerting the same effort to do the same thing at the same time. Is that true? Why? They could be sitting right here. They're in the same place, headed the same direction, exerting the same effort to do the same thing at the same time. They have quite a lot in common here, on this day anyway. I mean, their feet are pointing in the same direction. Hey, where are you going? I'm going up to the temple. Really, what are you going to do there? I'm going to pray. Really? Today? Yeah, oh yeah. Don't you want to go to, no, I'm, I'm going up into the temple to pray. Both of them. Okay, well, that's good. That's a good thing, right? Okay, wow, good. I was going to go to the ball game, but you're going up into the temple to pray. That's, whew, that's good. That's really good. Is that all it takes for God to get right? Because they both went up there and they both prayed. Right? Or is it something more than that? Because they both did it. Now, I want you to get a little picture of this. When I say they're in the same place, they're apparently both in Jerusalem. And uh, they're headed in the same direction, which is the temple. They're exerting the same effort. You say, what's that got to do with it? You ever been there, seen the temple? You didn't get up into the temple without exerting some effort. We're talking about some major stairs. Major stairs. <laughs> you didn't, like, walk by the temple and say, oh, look, the temple. I'll just, I'll just, oh, now I'm in the temple. Oh, wow. No. No, the temple was massive. It was elevated. That's why it says that they, the two went up into the temple. And the stairs, wow. I mean, you're going to have to go, wow, am I really going to go up into the temple? I mean, that's, can I just pray right here? Look, I'll just pray right here. No, I'm going to go up into the temple. They both said that. Maybe they had different motives, but hey, they're both headed there. Right? Fellowship prayer meeting? They're both headed there. And uh, I just want you to get a picture that you didn't just find yourself in the temple. Oh, how did I get here? Oh, no. No, no. A lot of stairs. And uh, up here, they're going to do the same thing at the same time. The temple mount there that Herod built in Jesus' day Encompassed 36 acres. 
36 acres. Now, some of you go, 36 acres. That's like, that's probably like my backyard, right? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's, that's good. How many of you think you know what 36 acres looks like? Oh, wow, we've got some farmers here. Look, I knew Thomas does, but I... Um, you know an acre is roughly, it's not perfect, but roughly a football field. It's a big area. Do you know it's going to be fairly public? Like, you're not going to go up there and in private. I'll go up to the temple because nobody will see me. Ah, uh, no. You ought to go to your basement then because they're going to see you. Both of these men on this day don't mind being seen. We're going to go up to the temple to pray. Yet their motives are different, but they're heading in the same direction. But that's where the similarities end. I mean, the men are both going to pray. They're both going to the temple. They both have money. I don't want you to think that the publican is just uh, you know, a flea bag in his overalls. He's got money. He looks good. Hey, Fred, how you doing? Wow. And, uh, you know, the differences, though, come in pretty quickly. Like one of these guys I think we've seen here before, but one of them we don't see very often here. Right? He doesn't come up here very much. Wow. Going to the temple today, eh? That's different. Unusual. Wonder what he's going to do up there. Verse 11. The Pharisee, let's look at him first, stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not. It's amazing those words kind of stand off the page there. I thank thee that I am not. Then he lists what he isn't. Well, that's good. I'm not these things. Now, of course, the Pharisees, Jesus would say this. They, they love to stand on the corners. They blow the trumpet and then they go into the synagogues or in this case, the temple. And they want their prayers to be heard and their works to be known. And so this is his purpose in going up to the temple. And you get that sense of it. He stood there and with a loud voice, he uh, prayed <laughs> with himself. Just him and himself. Apparently, God's not part of this. God's not listening. You know, David did say that. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard the senses there, if I, if I coddle what I do, my sin, if I, if I coddle it, like, a, you know, like you have a baby there, I just... I like what I do. I, it's fine. It's no problem for me. So he prays with himself. And saying that I am not as other men are. You have a tendency to shift the blame? Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You ought to... You, you know what so-and-so's did the other day? Not as bad as I used to be. <laughs> we blame ourselves in the past. 
<laughs> point the finger back there. But the essence of it is, I am not. Or even as his publican, this is how we know they're there at the same time. He can see him from where he stands. Then he talks about what he does. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. As if that will justify him, will make him righteous. And in verse 9, that's what he's trusting in. All that I do. What I am not, as bad as others might be, I am not. And look at all that I do. There we go. And God continues to be wrong and needing to get right. But now, look at here. Verse 13, and the publican. This is remarkable. First of all, it says, standing far off. Standing afar off, like in 36 acres, how do you stand far off? Does that mean he ran away? He's in a corner somewhere? No, the, the Pharisee can see him. This one. Doesn't mean that he ran off the Temple Mount or he's in a corner somewhere or behind a pillar. He stands afar off. Far off from what? Stands afar off from the posture of the Pharisee. How different he is. Why did he come up here? Why did it have to be the temple? Why so public? You know why? Because it's time for change. I'm done with this. Whatever it is that this publican is beset by, whatever attempts he's made at self-reformation haven't worked, today it's going to get done. He's going to the temple. Yeah, but people are going to see. People are going to know. People need to know. Don't you think people saw Zacchaeus in the tree? Don't you think they saw him? It was a little hard to hide. He was easier to hide on the ground. He was just a little guy. But in a tree? Okay, that's kind of weird. Do you know he was a publican? Do you know somehow in his heart he said, it's got to be over. I'm done with this. Things have got to be different. No longer the same. Today, God is going to get right. Today. This publican goes to the temple, stands afar off with a completely different posture and purpose than what the Pharisee has. And it says he would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast. This is Jesus' story. He must have seen it happen. Time and again, perhaps. Whether they were publicans or other sorts of sinners, he saw them go into the temple. A house of prayer, according to Isaiah 56. That's why Jesus cleansed it. You've made my father's house a den of thieves, but it's a house of prayer. These men came here to do this. But one of them really met with God. Really met with God. And this is how he did it. He smote upon his own breast. And in the Greek, 
It's a continual action. He stood there. It was deep. It wasn't a one-time thing. Oh, God. It's got to stop. What's got to stop? Whatever brought him up here. I'm not leaving here. I don't care who sees me. Wow, people are going, what's going on with Fred? Man, just throw the money in the treasury here. Be on your way. What's got a hold of him? Well, his sin is what brought him up here. But this publican has determined that he will leave it here. This will not follow me. I will have victory. I know I'll find it there. That's where God is. Notice he doesn't talk about what he does, like the Pharisee. He doesn't say, I am not. No, he says what he is. Do you see it? Saying, God, not what I do, what you need to do. Be merciful unto me. And what is he? What is he? A sinner. What is that? God, I'm a liar. God, I'm a cheat. God, I have a viewing problem. I'm an adulteress, adulterer. God, I'm a sinner. You say, well, I'm a child of God. Yes, absolutely. But you're not going to have that restoration without confessing 1 John 1, 9. We don't want to skip that part. We just want to feel better. How does God get right? When we correct our plea. What's the plea of the, of the Pharisee? It's really just, everybody ought to know what a great guy I am. All I'm learning, all I've learned, all I'm doing, the plea of the publican is, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Now look at verse 14. Jesus says now, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Do you know it's, it's essentially the same word as found in verse 9, righteous. He is actually the innocent one. Because by humility, he got a hold of God. And God was merciful to him. Because he named his sin. And he wanted it gone. And he was willing that day to do anything, even go to the temple, to see that it was remedied. The publican. And the remedy came like that, healing. Like a blind man receiving his sight. Like a lame man being able to get up and walk right now. He's justified. 
made innocent, not guilty. You know, we might consider that in some area that God is speaking to us about, that we need to change our plea. I have before me here for your perusal an application. You know what this application is? If you were to seek a presidential pardon from the White House, you would need to fill out this application. That's what this is. You can pull it right offline. It's 28 pages long. You cannot get a presidential pardon without filling out this form. It's fascinating. You thought the president just came up with it. Your, your nice name. <clears throat> you know, in here, it's fascinating. On page three. For your presidential pardon. Here it is. Here's what it says. Provide a complete and detailed account of the offense for which you seek pardon. A complete and detailed account. This is a person who's in prison for whatever. And likely at that time when they went to prison, they'd pleaded, I didn't do that. Not guilty. Everybody pleads not guilty. I didn't do it. I'm innocent. Totally innocent. Your honor, jury, innocent. Do you know how you have to plead here? Do you know if a, if a person seeking a presidential pardon fills this form out and says, I didn't do it, you know what happens with this? How can you be pardoned for something you didn't do? Every person who is pardoned by the president has to admit their guilt. It's right here on page three. You have to write, it's a full page, see it? It's like an essay. Maybe we just hand these out in class. Okay, here's your essay. Here's what it says. Provide a complete and detailed account of the offense for which you seek pardon. You are expected to describe in your own words the relevant factual circumstances of the offense. Do not simply repeat the description of the offense contained in the indictment or, pre- or, or, or present- pre-sentence report or rely on criminal code citations alone. Don't just repeat what your roommate's telling you that you're doing wrong. What did you do wrong? You say it. You describe it. What is your offense? If the conviction resulted from a plea agreement, you should describe the full extent of your involvement in the criminal conduct. In addition to the charges to which you pled guilty, if you need more space, use the optional continuation page. Back on page... uh, 13, number 20, state your reason for seeking a pardon. Please refer to paragraph 4 of the information and instructions on pardons, which indicates that a pardon is ordinarily a sign of forgiveness, not vindication. If you're still seeking vindication, you're not going to get it. That's not why the, the publican came to the temple. To be vindicated. He came up there to get forgiveness. You can't be pardoned or forgiven unless you've done something wrong. What is it? We teach little children, name your sin. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence. You want the presence of God? You might want to change your plea. 
Go with me to Psalm 51, if you would. There's part of this psalm that I never really understood. I just want to look at it here in closing. Psalm 51. Because David himself changed his plea. And he describes his, his application for pardon, essentially. What was on his heart, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You know, when Nathan came to him and started, told him a story about a guy in his kingdom that stole a sheep, can you believe it? The guy had all kinds of sheep and he stole one, right? What did David say? Oh, that's terrible. That's unbelievable. I'm going to kill the guy. What's his name? Give me his phone number. Something. Give me something to go on. I'm going to kill the guy, right? Yeah, trusted in himself that he was righteous and condescended to others. And Nathan said, thou art the man. The Holy Spirit pointing a finger. Has God been trying to deal with? And yes, maybe it's a person or persons that's, that's come to you to present what God has been trying to reach you about. And you have stiff-armed and you're not interested and God is still wrong. You know, it'd be a great day for God to get right, wouldn't it? If that were the case, if that were the case, this would be a good day for God to get right. Look at Psalm 51. Verse 3, David said, my sin is ever before me, not others, mine. I'm now focused on my sin. Verse 4, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Here it is. This is where Romans 3 quoted, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest. That God got justified when David said, I have sinned to Nathan. God got justified. God, why didn't I listen to you sooner? I thought you were wrong. You weren't wrong, I was. It might be time to change our plea in some area that God's been dealing with you about. Today would be a good day for God to get right. Let's bow our heads. While our heads are bowed, let's just take this opportunity here. And I want to give you an opportunity. Maybe the Lord has touched on something. Maybe there's other things that you've gotten right. And, but maybe not everything. You know, when you go down justified, you're right. You're cleansed, 1 John 1, 9. Has God touched you about something? How many would say with the uplifted hand, there's something in my life that God, I know God is pointing to. And I want to get that thing right today. I want to be justified and I want to admit that it's me. Would anybody lift their hand and say, that's me? I see several hands. Okay, let's stand to our feet. I'm going to have the piano play. If you feel like, you know, it's not the temple, it's not 36 acres, but I'm willing to go up and get that thing right today. While the piano plays, you come.